0: Welcome to the Plexus podcast. Today, Brad Johnson is joined by John R. Loyak, president of Alvernia University. Welcome to the Plexus podcast series. Today, we have John Loyak at Alvernia University in Pennsylvania. Uh, John, first off, Steelers or Eagles?
1: Cowboys. Cowboys.
0: Oh, neither. Okay. (laughs) So now, how are you a Cowboys fan?
1: Well, I I tell the story all the time because everybody asks. So my short answer is they're America's team. So isn't everybody a Cowboys fan? But the real answer is when I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, the Eagles and Giants were so bad that because of NFL blackout rules, we never got either of them on television. So of the 13 guys that I grew up with and all went to high school together, nobody was an Eagles or Giants fan. Every, or everybody was Broncos, Raiders, Steelers, Cowboys, Vikings, because those were the games that were on TV. So we grew up seeing those teams, and we didn't have resources to go to Philadelphia to watch a football game in person. So that, that's how I became a Cowboys fan. They were the CBS game of the week. And who were who your favorite players? Well, so I sort of started just as uh, the year that Roger Staubach uh, halfway through the season became the starting quarterback and they beat Miami in the Super Bowl. So I grew up with, you know, that Cowboys team and, and then certainly the triplets in the 90s um, right through today. God, I'm old. <laughs>
0: Hey, that's okay. I hey, I feel the same way. I mean, I know with uh, <laughs> with, with the Steelers, you know, going back to Rocky Blyer. and yeah. Well, so. we, we used to lose
1: to you in the Super Bowl all the time, but they were great games. So.
0: Oh my goodness! Amazing games and Staubach. What a, what a great quarterback he he is, and what a great businessman he's become.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I was in Dallas for a decade and actually got to know him a little bit. So. Uh, we did some real estate transactions with his firm and what what a true gentleman and a beautiful family man and what an outstanding player he was in his day so
0: well so let's talk a little bit about about your background um you have an extensive business background but maybe you could talk to me a little bit about what led you to the presidency and one of the questions i always like to ask is who were your mentors that guided you through your journey that has led you now to the presidency at Alvernia?
1: Sure. So, you know, my, my uh, story's a tangled one. Uh, virtually all of my career has been in corporate. Um, um, first, my first executive role was the CFO and then an executive vice president and a chief operating officer and then a CEO, uh, largely in transportation. and utility and power um, as I built my career. In fact, I ran a platform in Texas for 10 years called Optum Energy um, that was private equity owned and then ultimately sold. And right at the time that that was happening, King's College is where I went to undergrad. I also have a graduate degree from Lehigh. um, And I was interviewing to go on to the board of trustees for King's um, when they had a sort of change in administration and realized that they were in um, a very difficult financial position. So the chairman of the board and I were pretty good friends. Um, He was part of my class group at King's. Um, And one thing led to another. And as I was transitioning the sale of the business and doing some work in Manhattan for the private equity firm that bought it, I also sort of jumped in and tried to help King's out of their mess and sort of ran a corporate playbook and Um, did all the insourcing, outsourcing, reshuffling um, that you do in the middle of a crisis, and then started to work towards growing the institution out of its problems and fell in love with higher ed along the way, wound up teaching entrepreneurship while I was doing all of the restructuring and and growth and developing a college town model in Wilkes-Barre, and um, just fell in love with that. Frankly, I thought I'd go back and do something corporate at some point on a more full-time basis. I still do some advisory work in Manhattan and I'm on corporate boards, but I I just fell in love with it. And when the uh, opportunity at Alvernia came up when the president here retired, we had a lot of common relationships, bankers, lawyers, accountants. I think I got 12 phone calls in two weeks about, hey, you need to come, to reading and, and be the um, president here. And so um, one thing led to another. And here I am a little over two years later. So not your normal a, not your normal track to the to the presidency. So well,
0: not your not your normal path, but you know, I, I've interviewed a number of presidents that are you're starting to see an interesting trend where it isn't that normal path. You still see several doctorates of education and doctors that take that path to the presidency, but to your point. There are a number of presidents today over the past several years that have that business background. Um, So talk to me a little bit about Alvernia. Is education a business? Uh,
1: It has to be. My uh, finance committee chair at Keynes said it best, no money, no mission. So no matter how good your student transformation is, no matter what your mission is, and we have a value-based mission as a Franciscan institution, um, there's no way to get there without resources and um, making sure that you run the business well. Um, frankly, that's what creates the platform to do all the great things that we're doing in Reading. So it, And we didn't start there. We, we did a year's worth of restructuring to get ourselves stable uh, and to create a platform where we could sort of grow the student experience and the mission of the institution, make investments in the downtown and start to grow. Um, you know, after probably seven years of decline. So that's a common story for midsize uh, colleges and universities. Um, You see it all the time, Um, but you do have to run it like a business. And I know people sort of think of higher ed differently, but it's not. Um, At the end of the day, I can only spend what I bring in. We're tuition dependent. We don't have, you know, a $10 billion endowment like Harvard or Notre Dame. So, you know, we have to earn that every class
0: Um, and every day, and you you better be good at it
1: or you won't have the resources to succeed.
0: Well, and and let's talk a little bit about competition because I know in Pennsylvania alone, uh, the the market's saturated, you know, related to post-secondary institutions, let alone the nation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how does Alvernia compete and thrive in this market?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, when we developed a strategic plan a couple of years ago, we created something we call the Alvernia advantage, which is why we think we're different. Um, and now we're putting resources in to make sure that we create those kinds of experiences that we've committed to deliver. So we think we do five things that really make us unique. Um, the size of our incoming classes lately would suggest that people agree as well as some of the national recognition we've gotten. but. Our goal is to create a completely experiential learning model because students need to have applied learning to be ready to go out into to create successful careers. And for what students and families pay for that education, you need a tangible outcome, right, for this to work. So we do five things. We are Bernadine Franciscan, we teach a value system around peacemaking and collegiality. We believe that that. A value system brings people to the middle of the world. The world needs more of those people today where everybody is so polarized. That is not our, our philosophy. We bring it together. We require community service. That's the experiential piece of the value system. So we don't just teach it in a classroom or talk about it. We put you out in the community doing it so that you can live the value system and learn how to engage with the community and do that early on. I tease parents at open houses. It's like COVID. Once you get it, um, you can't get rid of it, and that's how community service is. Once you get the bug for it, you never get rid of it. Then we tie that to a very thorough liberal arts uh, core education, because we believe we need to create good thinkers. People need to understand human behavior, analytics, the human experience, and be good thinkers, because the technology they're going to learn in their major changes so quickly, if you're not a good thinker and you can't adapt, you won't be able to keep up. So we start there. Then we, uh, we are a technical major based university and, and growing those technical programs. So we wanna provide you a great technical experience in your major and then just like service, marry it with experiential learning in the field or in our case, we have partners who are right in the classroom with us Uh, providing that experiential learning. So students get to do it before they have to really go out and do it. Oftentimes that leads to a job, but it it always leads to a resume. When I got here, about 60% of our students engaged in experiential learning through internships or projects uh, with uh, outside companies. Now, 100% of our students do that. And we think that gets gets students ready to make a living and a life because of the connection to the community and that concept of community service and being engaged in the community. And so we put out some very special people. We also know it's working with our alumni base. We have a net promoter score, which is not something you would normally hear a university talk about, uh, well over 50, which says that our alumni are out you know, sharing the great experiences that they have and promoting the, the university because of those experiences, which is the proof in the pudding.
0: Well, exactly, and you you talked about collaboration, you know, oftentimes when I ask the question around competition, uh, that word oftentimes goes hand-in-hand hand with collaboration, so can you talk a little bit about who you're collaborating with from a business standpoint, local community standpoint, alumni standpoint, and even other institutions, potentially?
1: Sure. Um... We are all about partnership and collaboration. Uh, One thing you learn when you're engaged with a mid-sized institution is, there's never enough resources to do it, do the things you want to do, and do them the way you want to do them. So the only way to do that is to do it with partners. And um, we've created this sort of college town initiative that has generated literally hundreds of partnerships in all uh, shapes, sizes, and forms. So. Uh, but at its core, as we refresh programs and add new programs, we're doing that in areas where the community needs the, the student employee and where students are interested in the technical outcome. Great example is engineering. We just added engineering here for the first time, brought in our first engineering class in the fall. We worked with 12 businesses here in the Burks region who helped us shape what the first programs would be, helped us fund the engineering labs for those programs, are providing internships. Their PhDs are teaching in our programs. Our students are doing project work in some of the most state-of-the-art R&D labs in the world. We've got some very large uh, multinational businesses that are headquartered here in the Berks area, Um, companies like Enersys and East Penn Battery and many others. Uh, All the big utility businesses are here, First Energy, UGI, all looking for engineers, all have a backlog of engineers. So you build that partnership and you create the experiential learning model and jobs for students. And you keep some of these critical businesses from an employment perspective in the region going because they have the engineering talent to continue on and develop the next product take on the next project, and so on. So it's a great, that's just one example, but one I I love to share. We also have a student-centered business incubator where our student fellows are trained in project management and uh, business case development. They're surrounded by local businesses, score a national score, and they work with entrepreneurs. In, In the year that we've had this operating We have served over 100 entrepreneurs and small businesses and helping them to develop. We've got five businesses in funding. We're part of the Ben Franklin Network, and we have many local community partners who are either funding that process or working in the incubator with students and entrepreneurs to help them get their business started with the idea of creating businesses in downtown Reading and creating new employment opportunities, walk-to-work employment opportunities for the community. Again, those are just a couple of examples. But frankly, if you're not doing that and connecting to the community in that way as a university, you are limiting your potential to have the resources you need to differentiate your product enough to be one of the institutions that thrive and survive.
0: Well, and let's talk a little bit about uh, adult learners in comparison to traditional learners. one of the ways that institutions are looking to grow and potentially expand is through online learning, online growth and expansion. And with that comes in many cases, a different audience that you're trying to market and you're trying to recruit. Can you talk a little bit about the adult versus traditional population and how you go about doing that? How you go about marketing and enrolling and retaining those students?
1: Yeah, we've been in that market a long time. In fact, um, we have something called community-based campuses, one in Pottsville, one in Philadelphia, and and we sort of have a subset of the university here in Reading and Berks County that does this, um, that is completely focused on um, adult learners, degree completion, graduate degrees, um, and certificate programs that help them advance their careers. We largely populate those campuses through relationships with businesses um, who need the talent. So whether it's Tower Health and St. Joe's, who want RNs to go to BSNs, to go to master's programs um, or to doctoral level programs, we build that pipeline. Teachers in the Reading School District who need to get ESL certificates. I could go on and on and on. So we've really built that Uh, program set, one relationship at a time. It's a hybrid of in-person, which is why we have bricks and mortar campuses and online programming that serves those students. Um, And it's been a very successful model for us. And frankly, some of our best life-changing stories come out of our adult population who can complete a degree and change their family trajectory get that master's degree that allows them to take the next step in their career. Um, It's a wonderful um, product and it's a wonderful set of of outcomes. But we do do it a little differently, uh, I think largely because we've been doing it a long time. Those campuses go back into the 90s, so we've been in those markets, and including our market as well here in Reading, doing these kinds of things, building those relationships from um, either the the high school, the community college, uh, the employer, to the classroom.
0: So, uh, as far as requirements of high school students, you know, making certain that that you're bringing in students that are ready for Alvernia that will be successful. um, Do you require standardized test scores? Um,
1: We certainly had, and then certainly with COVID, standardized test scores have kind of disappeared from the horizon. Some of, in some cases, because the tests just weren't available. Um, Frankly, my personal view on that is I've never been a big test score as the dominant indicator of student success, Um, because frankly, we see it all the time with our student undergraduate student population, which is heavily first-generation college students. Um, That's not necessarily the right indicator. We look at a lot of of different things. The other thing is, frankly, no matter what you rely on, GPA, test scores, uh, quality of high school that the student is coming from or some blended mixture, which is frankly what we do. Um, The gap between high school students and college readiness gets a little wider every year. COVID has made it even wider. Um, A few years ago, we instituted something we call the Navigator Program. So we have full-time navigators who work with students that start the summer before they come to Alvernia, and the navigators follow the students through their full career. Um, and we don't wait for students to stumble. The navigators work with those students from the summer before they start um, and engage with them all the way through the process um, and make sure that they're getting the resources and attention they need. It's one thing that a mid sized university can do, I think that larger scale institutions can, is you know, it's small classrooms, so our faculties are very engaged. Our navigators know everybody and everybody's situation and are there to help. So, When they need it, they get that nudge. Um, When they're nervous, they get that hug because we've got the resources and the people who engage at that level every day with them. Um, And it's created a great outcome. We've seen our retention rates the last uh, three years go up a couple of points each year. Um, Our success of freshmen has gone up and we really think that's the recipe because frankly, that gap is not going to get any smaller between... School education and what you need to compete in an engineering program, a nursing program, a PA program, an OT program. Uh, These are very technical majors that require um, readiness to be able to jump in and be successful. So we're creating some of that readiness um, as they get on the ground here to make sure that they can be successful and navigate these programs uh, to to the right outcome.
0: Yeah, and and I love the fact you talked about retention. And graduation, um, because you know, so often, so often institutions, for good reason, talk about enrollment and driving new students and revenue, and that's great. But uh, you know, in, in my humble opinion, I do think sometimes retention, student success, uh, graduation, you know, sometimes that's not forgotten, but may not be as emphasized as much as on the front end, and. You know, you mentioned Ben Franklin, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and so, you know, I love the fact that you're really focused on retention. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you engage alumni and, and really make sure that alumni stays involved with Alvernia? Yeah, you know,
1: that, that's that been a new initiative for us, frankly, because that engagement connection um Needed to be developed. We're a younger university. You know, 1958 was when the university was established as a small uh, teaching college for religious. And frankly, it was another 15 years after that before it was really a community based college with a broader set of majors. And so our alumni base is kind of young relative to many institutions. And, you know, the way we've figured out. early stage development of that connection is we have started a program two years ago to get our alum engaged in our student recruiting and retention process um, and we now have literally thousands of alum who will go put a um, alvernia wolf uh, sign in a newly accepted student's front yard and welcome them You know, to Alvernia University, we'll come here and mentor them, Um, we'll come to accepted students' events in their community and tell the Alvernia story. And frankly, it's been the best way to engage alum. Alum love to come to events, and we have, you know, over a thousand alum who come to our homecoming events and all that. But where the rubber, I think, meets the road is when they feel like they can make an impact and sort of pay forward. The experience that they got here at Alberni, again, many of them first-generation college students, students of need, uh, students of diverse backgrounds, they want to reach out to others to tell them about the experience they have, help them get into that experience because they know the life-changing nature of it. And that's where we've really seen the excitement. Um, and we set a goal two years ago to get 1,000 new engagements from our um alumni base, and we wound up with over 2,500. Our goal for this, which is our third cycle of doing it, is 5,000, and frankly, um, it's one of those things, if you ask, we rarely ever get a no. Um, Alumni want to engage, and I think that net promoter score, feeling good about the experience you've had here and the impact it has on your life, opens the door to these kinds of relationships. So um, it's great to see it's, a, it's great to see our culture of sort of pay it forward, coming back and paying it forward and helping students um, in the process get the same kind of, of life-changing experience. Uh, you man, you, we like to think we provide um, and no better way for potential students or incoming students or students who are in the process to see it than through the eyes of someone who's actually lived it. I can talk about it all day long, Uh, but there's no substitute for somebody who's walked in those shoes.
0: so. Yeah, it's so refreshing to hear uh, the strategy that you have around engaging alumni. Um, Something far different than simply asking for a donation and giving a- We do that too, by the way. way. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it makes it a little easier to give the donation. It does,
1: right? So if, if you're then asking for resources for somebody who's engaged, and is engaged in the current experience and working with students and has that level of commitment, um, it certainly makes it a lot easier to ask for those resources. And we didn't do the engagement for that reason. Um, We just felt like the alumni network could really help the student body and would be willing to do it. And sure enough, they were. But it sure is a nice byproduct.
0: Well, and and you talk about relationships, and uh, you know, I always talk to my my kids. I've got four little kids that are in middle school and uh, elementary school and middle school right now, and I always remind them to take advantage of opportunities that come your way. And a big part of that is, you know, whatever phase you are in education, you know, reach out to that teacher, reach out to that professor, you know, talk and engage and ask questions. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about relationships and how important it is while you're at Alvernia, hey, take advantage of the opportunities. And again, whether that's athletics, whether that's talking to a faculty member, whether that's talking to an alumni, maybe you can share a little bit about student success and how that's helped first generation students and other students as well. What what does it mean to really build those relationships and how does that help create lifelong learners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's core. I'll go back to it as as a core tool of retention, right? The more avenues that students are engaged in, so this is all about engagement and then building the networks of engagement um, for students to participate in. So if you're in an internship, if you're on an athletic team, if you're in a group, if you're working with alumni who care about your outcome, if you're in class sizes where the faculty know who you are and care about you, if you're working with a navigator who's helping you get through some of the problems and issues, and we've all had them when we went through undergrad and graduate school, that those relationships are frankly, what carry the day, right? Mm -hmm. Frankly, the problem with higher ed, and we see it all the time is people talk about the amount of money that people have to borrow for an education. The problem isn't borrowing, the problem is borrowing and then not getting to the outcome. If you borrow um, some funds to get an education that gets you on a track of lifelong learning and you're a nurse making $80,000 a year when you graduate, that's not the problem. It's the problem only, the problem is somebody who gets halfway through and leaves with debt and doesn't have a job outcome to repay the debt. So we've got, the way we can solve that problem, You know, I can't solve it for every institution, but I can certainly solve it for my students and future alum is, we get you engaged, we get you through the process, we get you to the outcome, and we get you really ready to succeed in the outcome. The rest of it takes care of itself. And I'll go back to that net promoter score. If we had a bunch of students who had debt and no job outcome, no career outcome, no community engagement outcome, we have a real low net promoter, promoter score because they'd be upset with us and they should be. The fact that, we can provide that experience and get them to the outcome. That's the beauty. And as you mentioned, it's about retention and graduation. It's not just about getting them on your campus. Um, you know that, That's what we need to be focused on. And I think, I think that's where the rubber meets the road. And it's all about relationships in the classroom, out of the classroom, on the field, in the, in the community with employers, if you've got all of that going on, it's easy for students to engage. And once they engage, they blossom, they grow, they graduate, and that transformation of making a living and making a life happens. And it's the wonderful outcome that frankly, higher education was meant to provide.
0: And so how how has How's the pandemic changed your day to day, and maybe even some key initiatives for the institution?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm probably going to be the odd person out here and say that um, I don't think it's affected us all that much. Um, there are always things that change. Um, there's there's no two ways about it. Um, but as I look at the strategic plan, the direction. What a year looked like before COVID, what a year looked like during COVID, what a year looks like now coming out of COVID. Um, Our mission, what we're trying to provide students really hasn't changed all that much. I I think some of that is that, you know, our gap of education where COVID really affected us and we weren't in person because we are an in-person experiential based learning model and there's no way to do that completely online not that online isn't a component or can't be but it can't be the core of it but you know we shut down in march and students were back the following august so um, we've seen some fallout from you know areas with our adult learners that have been displaced because of covid either because of unemployment or such heavy employment like delays in nurses going from RNs to BSNs because they're so busy and working so many hours, they have to take a break because they just can't keep up with the workload. We've seen small impacts like that, but frankly, it hasn't changed our model or view of the world. Um, In many cases, I think students were anxious to get back to the community and their friends and the social network. You know, part of what happens in the transformation of college students is that social development. If you said a freshman and a sophomore, a junior and senior in front of me, I've been in higher ed long enough now, I could tell you which one is which after five minutes of conversation. There is a real development, confidence building thing that comes from the experience you get. Frankly, I think parents were ready for them to get out of the house and get back to the campus. Um, so I think all those things work well. I think it's part of you know, while we've had some record classes the last couple of years, new programs, experiential learning. So I don't see it changing all that much. I think the landscape of higher ed in general is changing at a very rapid pace. And I think there are institutions who are in change mode to create experiential learning opportunities and outcomes and are putting the resources in to see it through that will survive. And there are those who are stuck in an older model and can't get out of it for a myriad of reasons many times not because they don't want to, but because there's a restriction that holds them back from doing it that frankly won't survive. You pick up the Chronicle, higher ed today, there's an institution that's going out of business or near out of business. I was just reading about another one in New Jersey yesterday. Um, If you're not gonna change your model or you can't because um, of some restriction that won't let you, um, frankly, populations dwindle we're all tuition based in our size of of institution. And then there's no way to continue on. And that is a shame, but that is the the landscape, the sector, the competition. Um, There's just, and you know, in in 2025, when that cliff moves down even more, if you're not relevant, if your experience isn't special, if you don't have the programs, the experiential learning, the experiences, it, it is gonna put pressure at a whole new level on institutions, even though today's pressures are pretty big.
0: <coughs> yeah, that's so true. You know, and you mentioned the cliff, and and you know, in, in my day-to-day world, you know, we experience that every, every day. Talking to a number of institutions, you know, the concern about, how, you know, how, how do we differentiate? How do we separate ourselves? Because to your point, that's where the reality sets in. You yeah. know, it's you, you you do need to you know, why ABC University? And you need to be able to talk about that beyond, hey, we have small classrooms, hey, which are oftentimes a typical response. And I, you know, to your point, I look at benefits and true differentiators as two different things.
1: I, I, w- I would agree with that. Many of us could say we're mission-based. Many of us could say, you know, we want community service, small classrooms. When I hear small classrooms, my first thought is, is it a small classroom because nobody is coming and the product isn't that good? Or is it a small classroom because that's your delivery model and it's a key component on how you transform students, right? Um, And sadly, if you're in that first category, um, the future is not bright. If you're in the second category, because it's high touch and the students who come to us need that extra time, attention, relationship for them to bloom and blossom. they are two different things, yet I'll say the same thing. I have smaller class sizes, Um, but my uh, rationale for smaller class sizes is it allows me to provide the student conversion opportunity to the type of student I'm transforming effectively and I have the programs and the demand, so it's not that issue. Um, The issue is how do I deliver the product, create retention, get students across the finish line, get them into the making a living, making a life mode successfully for the investment they're making in us to get that opportunity, right? I think they're two different things, yet if you read a brochure, it sounds very much the same way. And you're right, you have to find a way, and you started the conversation that way, and I think it's right on point. How are you different? How do you differentiate? Because there's 92 independent schools in the state of Pennsylvania alone. So how do I differentiate myself um, from every other one of them? Most of them are not large. So there's a handful at the top. Most of us are in the middle somewhere or even smaller. So how are you differentiating yourself? We see what's going on with the PASI system and the forced consolidation and I just it was on the front page of our local newspaper, the declining enrollment, the biggest decline in a decade, which was really, if you look back at the state system, when the declines began. So they've had steady declines over a decade and now the largest decline in the last cycle. How do you survive that even as a state school getting state resources and continue to to move the product forward? So you might have small class sizes. I would, if I was a parent, ask, why do you have small class sizes? What's the rationale that gets you there? And if there's a pause in that conversation, I'd be leery about the institution and sort of how it differentiates itself and why its product is better than somebody else's product. And not that there aren't a lot of great products out there. There are. But you better be working on a strategy that allows you to create that differentiation. Because parents are savvy. Students are savvy. They get it. Uh, We had an open house last weekend with 135 families. They get it. they they understand what they want for their student. And again, today, values matter, being in the community with service matters. Those things matter to parents and matter to students.
0: So where do you see Alvernia in in 10 years?
1: Yeah, so we have this goal of becoming a regional comprehensive university. And I, I think we're well on the way to do that. So that's new markets for us, that's the, drive to globalize the campus. We had one international student when I got here uh, from Ireland. We now have over 100 from five different countries and we continue to grow that. New programs allow us to do that. Technical programs allow us to do that. Our recruiting reach is going deeper and deeper because of some of these technical programs into markets, because particularly with the cliff coming in 2025, you need to be in new places attracting new families to to the model and the differentiation of what we can provide. But frankly, I think we'll have more community-based campuses like in Pottsville and in Philadelphia where there are niches for uh, adult learners that we can fill that the marketplace just isn't filling. We've got three or four of those on our radar screen as we continue to develop um, and build things out. So I think you'll see our reach spread our geography spread, our program based spread, the quality of our facilities and even existing programs improve. It's part of, of our initiative and our strategic plan to have facilities that match great faculty so you get the full experience. That experiential learning model sells, which allows us to sort of take the brand to new markets. Um, and I think we'll, I, I, I'm very optimistic that we'll be successful. In doing that. So I think if you look at Alvernia a decade from now, um, it'll be a different tier of institution, frankly, because of the initiatives we have. Uh, the first couple of years of success certainly suggest that there are more years of success in front of us. And, and I'll leave it feeling very good. You know, many the, the, the past few presidents have really grown the institution to the next level. Our job in this administration is to expand our mission and provide that um, Alvernia advantage to new markets and new families and new students, new adult learners.
0: Yeah, and and as far as the ability to move at an institution, um, is Alvernia able to move quickly as you learn and grow and uh, continue to do things that are successful? but then be able to pivot quickly and move in a direction, um, you know, that you want to go in. The reason I asked that is, you know, higher education, I think sometimes gets an unfair blemish that says, well, it's very bureaucratic. It's slow to move. Things don't happen very quickly. Can you talk a little bit about your, and again, I think with your business background and what you've already shared with us today, talk to me about how important it is to work together with faculty, with administration, to be able to move initiatives, forward at an efficient pace?
1: Yeah, I I will say, to start to answer that, you're right. And and one of the things I think we pride ourselves on the most has been our ability to develop a strategy, create opportunities, harvest those opportunities, and do it quickly and keep moving. Because then it refills the pipeline to be able to go do the next one. We're blessed with a faculty, frankly, who get it, who get what it takes to create resources uh, that get what it is that students need and want and families expect for the investment. Um, it, there's been a long tradition of a small liberal arts school adding more and more technical programs to grow its base and grow the institution. We're taking that up a notch and collapsing the cycle time to do it. The building you see behind me is a brand new facility that just came on in August. It was, That all happened in 18 months. 18 months ago, I said we'd have an engineering program. We recruited our first class of engineers without a building, without an accreditation, without faculty, and met our goal, and they're in that building. Um, So that's moving fast. Right behind that, we approved a physician assistant program. Drexel just opened a medical school here in Reading. For half of those docs will stay in the community. Those docs need PAs in their practice. There's no program here to provide them we will be providing them. By next year, they'll be in this facility um, in new state-of-the-art um, classrooms, partnering with one of our uh, met local medical partners for clinical rotations to, to put PAs out in the community because the community wants them and needs them. And we've been able to move very, very quickly. We've added seven new programs and refreshed two major programs in two years. We've also added three new sports and esports, which is somewhere between an activity and a sport. Um, and the esports arena is in this new facility that went from vacant building to student housing, classrooms, esports arena, engineering labs, a business incubator, all in 18 months. So our county commissioners called it a COVID miracle. Uh, but it, it, it again. I think some of the value of having a business minded president is I'm used to a world that moves at that pace um, and we've all been working. We don't move quite that quickly, um, but relative to, I think, our peers much faster uh, to be able to capture opportunities in the market.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, you know, we talked about differentiators earlier. Well, that can be a differentiator, right? It definitely is. There's a few ways about it. Right, it,
1: think of a family coming to look at your institution. You've got new facilities, new programs. They get a sense for the quality of the facilities, the quality of the faculty when they come and visit. Are you likely, more likely to go to that institution or one that's shrinking and laying faculty off and the facilities are under maintained? Right, that's the, that becomes the differentiator. And being able to move quickly and create those programs and create new resources from the tuition revenue that comes from those programs and getting the community to support you so that you don't have to spend all of the dollars to create it is the magic recipe. And then you're on everybody's radar screen. What we're doing in downtown Reading is reached so far. I had Senator Casey's team here yesterday and right before they got here, I was on the phone with the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia because they had heard about what we were doing and wanted to hear about it. And they're doing a study on the impact that colleges have on Uh, economic development in the cities that they support. It's amazing, right? So just think of that versus the contracting institution and the experience you get when you come here versus you get there, it is truly a differentiator. If you're in growth mode, frankly, it's different than most institutions and parents and families see that. The students who are here in the program see that um, and they're getting those experiences and it makes all the difference.
0: It's so true. It's so true. You know, and, and that ability to give, give, give and show that you care about the students, you know, and you care about the parents. Um, you know, it's it's so, so critical. Um, so do you have do you have Cowboy tickets this year? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do have tickets for the
1: Cowboys Eagles game, so <laughs> I will be there.
0: Well, Hopefully, the yeah.
1: outcome will be as good as the Cowboys Eagles game in Dallas this year. So.
0: Oh wow! Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we um, I, so I, I live in Franklin, Tennessee, and so we we just had a big win with the Titans. Yeah, that was a great game. Boy, that was that was a really good game, and uh, I'll tell you, it's uh, that Derek Henry. He's 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 a big man. <laughs> no two ways about it. Well, excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been phenomenal. I think it's been very educational for our audience. Um, we, we really appreciate it. And hopefully we can do a phase two down the road.
1: Yeah, I'd love to do it. And I, I appreciate you having us be part of all this. And it was fun talking with you. So um, I get to do this quite a bit lately, uh, but I always enjoy it. And it's great to get the word out. So thank you for helping us do that.
0: Excellent. That'd be great. And I look forward to coming to campus sooner than later. Yeah. We'd love to have you down and
1: show you all the cool things that we're doing. So
0: excellent. Well, thanks all again. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank, Thank you. Guys. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, you can visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P L exusscom forward slash solutions or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com